This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in to the Otson Audibles podcast. Matt Prem, Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to your Friday edition uh, a little later than normal, if you listen to us on the regular, right when the pod drops out, we apologize. But uh, some news kept happening and kind of shuffling around the podcast, uh, the topics we wanted to discuss. Um, Jared, th- three verbal commitments from walk-on specialists this week. This becomes, uh, I think, the focal point of the podcast. Um, most recently on Friday morning, Alex Bales from Cincinnati uh, a kickoff specialist with a little bit of experience as a place kicker. He announced his commitment to Oregon, but also uh, two punters joined the mix this week as well. Yeah. Two more punters and Adam Barry, a transfer at a temple and then Ross James, a junior college transfer. Uh, both Barry and Bales put their names in the transfer portal from their respective schools. Um, yeah. This is a result of, Will Hutchinson ending the transfer porter, Race Malhum and Cristiano Palazzo, all of which were three walk-on specialists. Uh, Will Hutchinson was the primary punter during the Oregon spring game. So if you watch that, that means you watched him. Um, he did a good job then. It was a surprise that he entered the transfer portal, frankly, because it, it did seem like he was, you know, he was the number one guy at a spring camp because yeah. Tom Steve wasn't at spring camp. And we've seen a lot of Tom in the last two years, um, he's dealing with something back home is what Lanning said uh, back in April. Uh, there's still not 100% clarity on that. There's still not 100% clarity if he'll be back or he won't be back by the start of fall. Um, but Oregon isn't really waiting to figure that out. Um, they went and got Andrew Boyle out of the transfer portal back in, I want to say, January or sometime like that. They pick up the three guys in the last week, last three days, frankly, um, through the transfer portal again, uh, you look at a guy like Barry, um, you know, he's averaging over 40 yards to punt when he was at Temple. He hits the transfer portal. You look at a guy like Alex Bales. He's from Cincinnati, a college football playoff team, uh, you know, racked up over 5,000 yards and touch or kickoffs in his career with over 40 touchbacks. Um, these guys are clear specialists. They're much needed because Oregon had – Camden Lewis. And I think that was it on their roster heading into this upcoming season. So they're replenishing um, their moves, um, their important moves, but they might not move the needle for most everybody. It's a shame that, that, that Eric can't be on the podcast to discuss <laughs> the specialists because that this is, is that's his, his mojo. That's his thing, man. Yeah, this is his jam. Uh, I, I think most notably, though, uh, you've got when you go in and you look at Oregon's full transfer uh, roster for 2022, um, that would include Andrew Boyle from Washington State, another kicker. Um, they have now added three players 
who have division one experience kicking. I, I think that's, I think that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good deal. Um, and it's a lot, it's a lot different from the, yeah, exactly. I was going to say it's a lot different from what Mario did. Yeah. Where it was a lot of high school kids or even someone like, uh, Hank who came on as a, like a walk on kicker from the soccer team. Yeah. So like, this is much different with these guys with actual legitimate D one experience. And if, and, and these three guys have all played, that's, mm-hmm. I think that's something that, that matters is they're not just a walk on at a, another D one school. I just never saw the field. Um, you know, I don't think any of these guys were the guy at their respected school, um, clear cut, but they all got on the field. They all played. I mean, Alex Bales was the kickoff specialist and then had uh, a couple field goal attempts this past season. He had more than a handful of PAT attempts. So they've, they've got experience on the field, and I think that matters. That's only going to push the competition level because these dudes have a taste of the, of of playing Division One football at, at a Power Five level. And Bales comes from a team that was in the college football playoff. Right. Um, he's not coming here just to to ride the bench. He he wants an opportunity to play. Um, so these, I think, these all are going to push uh, the the current guys. And if Tom Snee is back, he's going to have to fight for his job. If Tom Snee is not back uh, in 2022, Oregon's got some options. And Camden Lewis. Mm. Don't know what that was. <laughs> Sounds like a computer noise. Sounds like it. Uh, Camden Lewis will will have the ability to fight off some guys competing for his job. All in all, like you said, these aren't going to it's the Richter scale of college football won't move a lot with these, but I think these are still oh, no. good additions. Yeah. No, it won't move at all, <laughs> but they are good additions. And I think it's important that you brought up that um, while none of these guys were like the dudes at their respective school, like they were all, most of them were starters. I mean, Adam Barry was Temple's primary punter. Um, like you said, Alex Bales was, was at Cincinnati's primary kickoff specialist. Um, and Honestly, if I'm if I'm an Oregon fan, and in you know, the last few years I've been watching kickoffs with Camden Lewis, I'm I'm cool with a kickoff specialist. Yep. Like I, I think that is maybe it's not maybe it's not worthy of a scholarship spot if you're a football team, but that's worthy of going out in the portal and getting somebody who kind of serves the same purpose as what Camden Lewis can do, but is much better at kickoffs. And again, that's a weakness in Lewis's game. Uh, he was very good on field goals last year, which seemed to be a weakness. But again, it adds more competition. Um, the old adage, you know, the iron sharpens iron. Yeah. Um, that's continuing at every position group for Oregon now, including specialists and kickers. All right, let's transition over um, to some recruiting news on the site uh, this weekend. Oregon's going to have a couple guys on campus. Um, it, I think it's, it's pretty important that we, we mention these cause there is a possibility of some flips here. Um, Oklahoma wide receiver commit Ashton Cozart. Uh, he's from Marcus high school in flower man, flower mound, Texas. Um, but 
the the story really here is is he he's from originally the Pacific Northwest. He's from Washington. This is a kid that moved uh, during his high school season, I believe, or career to Texas. So he has ties to the state of uh, to the Pacific Northwest. He's going to be on campus this weekend. This is important because. Oregon has tried to keep this really low under the under the radar um, until Friday when it st- really started to leak out. Um, Oklahoma does not allow other commits to visit schools or the, the, their their commits to visit other schools, a la what Peterson did at Boise State in Washington, what Chip Kelly did at Oregon a long time ago. If you commit to Oklahoma, you you don't visit other schools. You're done. Um, Cozart is coming to Oregon. This, despite being uh, committed to Oklahoma. And I think this is an opportunity for Oregon to, to add another receiver. I mean, we, is he going to flip this weekend? It's possible. I'm not going to say it's going to happen or it's not going to happen, but this is a good move. Looking at his offer list and what Oregon has at receiver. I I, I like this run at a commit. Certainly. Um, Cozart's a good football player. He's top 200 player in the country. Now, almost almost 6'3", 180, uh, or it certainly doesn't help, or certainly doesn't not help to add more wide receiver talent if you're Oregon. Um, quick little rant. The, uh, the you're committed here, you can't take other visits rule. Stupid. I think it's dumb. I think if, I, I'll just stop it there. I could go on for a long time. But um, Cozart as a potential a flip would certainly set the stage for for another recruiting victory for Oregon. Obviously, um, I think it's I think it's really important for Oregon to keep on their hot streak, especially yeah. in the class of twenty twenty three. I watched a good amount of tape from from Cozart, um, you know, after the the news that he was visiting. Um, I really like who he is as a player. Um, he's not the fastest. Uh, it says on his twenty four seven profile that he ran a four four five forty. Take that as you what what you will. Um, he's got an impressive offer list. I mean, committing to Oklahoma, I know they don't have Lincoln Riley, but that's one of the better programs in the country. Alabama's going after him. Um, you know, he's got offers from Michigan and Missouri and all these SEC schools. Um, he's a solid player. He runs really smooth. He uses his height and his skills really well. Um, if Oregon were to land this, it'd be it'd be a nice huge commitment. Um, but I do think. The, the underlying portion of this, which you mentioned, Matt, is that, you know, he played his freshman season of high school football at Kennedy Catholic in Seattle and Washington. And I think that that plays such a huge role here for Oregon and their ability to potentially steal him, yeah. I guess. Um, and again, that you would you'd think like most Pacific Northwest teams would be in on him. And I think that they are. And I think that Oregon... Um, getting him to visit and convincing him to come out to Eugene, I think is a huge step. Also on campus this weekend is another verbal commitment to another school in the Southwest. And that is Johnny Bowens, a four-star defensive defensive lineman who's committed to the Texas A&M Aggies, um, a top 200 player in the eyes of 24 seven sports, 32nd best defensive lineman in the country, um, a guy that has offers from SEC, Big 12, AAC schools. Um, Johnny will be on campus this weekend as well for for a visit. And I, I like this move. There's a lot of 
um, connections with Oregon, most notably um, Johnny Bowman's, I'm sure, has a relationship with Oregon's Marshall Malkow, um, a really, really talented, connected chief of recruiting at Oregon. Um, I'm sure he played a big factor in getting Johnny to commit to the Aggies. And so I, I think you look at um, this player and this is just an opportunity for Oregon to make a run at a defensive lineman that quite frankly is hard to find out West. Yeah. You're not wrong when those are hard to find out West. Um, I really like what Johnny brings to the table. Honestly, you could watch his, his huddle film of his last season, his junior year highlights and just watch the first play and be like, okay, yeah, this guy's, <laughs> this guy's pretty good. Um, he really reminds me of what, of, of Brandon Dorless, like Brandon Dorless year two at Oregon, where he started to emerge as a true prospect. Um, he's big, he's physical, he's quick off the ball. He uses his hands really well. I'm going to steal another, a, a crystal ball phrase and, and that he was heavy handed. I love it. Um, this kid is heavy handed. He, he drives through the offensive lineman. He plays six A in, in high school in, in, in Texas, which is, I think is the top of their top of their list there. Um, he was all six A state team. Uh, this guy's really talented. And if he were not, if he were a defensive line prospect, if he lived in, you know, Mission Viejo in California, I think he'd be much higher ranked as he is. Um, but because he's in Texas, it's, you know, the, the amount of really good players from Texas is impressive. Um, again, this is another huge thing. I'm sure Marshall Malco had some opportunity to, to, to get in his ear and say, Hey, come out to Oregon. We're building something special here. Um, but again, this is another, another great testament to, you know, a lot of, a lot of Dan Lanning staff maybe didn't have West Coast connections at first. Um, they're certainly getting it now, but they're still going back to their old stomping grounds at Texas A&M, um, at Baylor, stuff like that. Um, and, and getting these guys to still come out here and at least, you know, consider the fact that Oregon could, could be a school for them. Um, I think that's what they're doing here with Johnny Bones. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, Jared, there's throwing this in here. We haven't talked about it pre-show, but there's also some rumors that Caleb Chapman, um, a receiver from Texas A&M, Six foot five. Uh, I think he is a junior in 2022. COVID has everything all messed up. There's some rumors he could be also on campus this weekend. Um, injuries have certainly hurt his playing career at, at A&M. Uh, twice he's been out for the season with injuries. Um, so he's a guy who maybe hasn't had the career he, he expected. He's in, entered the transfer portal. Um, a four-star composite receiver, six foot five, two years of eligibility. He's looking at Oregon too. I mean, Oregon, there's something there. Um, Oregon is dabbling with a couple transfer receivers, and and now Caleb Chapman has emerged as another target. It, what are your? I mean, I'm kind of surprised at that. Maybe it's a numbers issue. I don't know, but I'm just a little surprised that they keep looking at transfer portal receivers. I mean, two years eligibility is really nice there. Yeah. Um, I think they could certainly still use to add one. Um, again, this is what, what Chapman could probably talk about his experiences with injuries. And if Oregon goes down two wide receivers who go out for, I don't know, three, four weeks at a time, um, that receiver room looks a lot smaller. And 
I'd say they're at a good number now compared to where they were. But bringing in him and Casper up until, you know, up in uh, when summer camp starts or fall camp begins, like in August, um, that, I don't think there's any reason to not like it. There are probably other positions of need. I would wholeheartedly agree with you need to probably need some cornerbacks here, some safeties. Um, but if this is another uh, Marshall Malco type of situation where he knows this guy and, and the, there's playing time here, um, he's a six foot five wide receiver. You don't find those often. Yes. Those don't grow on trees. Um, if he's healthy and can make an impact, um, you might as well try to bring him in. Uh, he's got two years, so that would use a scholarship for both years. But again, if if this player is healthy, you know, he's a four-star recruit coming out of high school, um, he has some talent. Um, I think you can use him kind of like you would a tight end, or how, or honestly, you could use him to just train Kyler Casper and say, "Hey, this is how you use somebody with your size. Like this is how you do it." Um, it might not be the worst thing in the world. Um, but yeah, going after a wide receiver is kind of interesting. Um, I wouldn't expect that to be high on their priority list. Um, but then again, we haven't, Oregon hasn't had an offense that's been really high on wide receivers for the last couple of years. So I'm, I'm not accustomed to how important they put a, put a price or sure. whatever it is on a wide receiver. And with, with Kenny Dillingham's offense and what we saw, at least during the spring game, it's that wide receivers are going to be used and they want different versions of every type. They want tall and short. They want fast. They want guys who catch the ball in the middle of the field. Um, I'm in for it. You know, this is a kind of a, a trust the staff situation at first, and maybe it works out for them. Maybe it doesn't, but um, I don't, I don't think it wouldn't be, a, I don't think it would be terrible if they took this guy in. Your Kyle Casper comparison is pretty interesting. That that kind of could create like a hey Kyle Kyler if if you're if you're ready you're ready and you'll help. But if you're not ready, it's okay. We we don't need you this season. Um, we'd love to have you, but we don't need you. Um, I've tried talking about, a lot about this in basketball where. You, you don't want to require, you know, require a five-star freshman to be your number one or number two guy um, just because of the pressure. And, you know, he's never played college ball before. And I think this kind of maybe applies to, to Casper. So I, I like that comparison as well. Um, that's certainly one to look into. And maybe that's a, a reason why they're interested in Caleb Chapman. Um, let's take a quick break. We come back. The Pac-12 made some changes to how they will – pit Pac-12 championship game opponents against one another, and uh, it's pretty interesting. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, welcome back to the Autzen Audibles podcast. Uh, Matt Prem and Jared Mack here on the show. Um, the Pac-12 this week, Jared, introduced a change to the Pac-12 championship game format. Uh, they are doing away with divisions starting in 2022. Um, that This was always kind of like, hey, it's probably going to be 2023. And like the day one when the legislation was passed by the NCAA that's, that conferences could eliminate divisions, the league shot out a release saying we're doing it and it's happening in 2022. And instead, we're going to pit uh, the two highest winning percentage teams in the conference, uh, in conference games uh, to face off in the Pac-12 championship game. And if you go back in history, there's been 11 Pac-12 championship games. And if you go back in history, five of them would have had different outcomes. I think it's a smart move. I think it gives the audience, the viewership, the fan bases of every team. Um, I think it gives them more of a reason to cheer in this game. Um, there have been you know, countless opportunities where what you thought were the best two teams in the Pac-12 or maybe they're from the same division and you know they play face off against each other. And I would say one team wins and one team doesn't and they have the tiebreaker. And then that team that you don't think is as good, you know, heads in to the Pac-12 championship game. Um, yep. Kind of like how Oregon's, Oregon and Stanford would be in the mid to late 2010s where you know, they'd, they'd play each other and, and it wouldn't matter who was the better team all the on the season, all that mattered who was the better team that night in terms of who could get to the backdoor championship game. Um, so again, I think, I think this is a good move. Um, I'm a little surprised that it went immediately yeah. right after it was announced. I'd imagine they would take a year. Um, it's going to, it's going to be a little sad not having like a real pack 12 North, the pack 12 South. Um, I guess this is going to be the end of all divisions in college football, um, which will then turn into the end of all conferences, and then it'll be the end of college football. So we're, you know, <laughs> we're going down the yellow brick road as we speak. So I, I'm just kind of interested to see how this will all play out in year one, and if the Pac-12 will, um, will a remember the rules that they created, and b if they'll figure out a system that will help them. Because I don't know, it'd be a fun one to watch them kind of figure it out on the fly. If you're curious about what changes would have happened if they had the system in place from the very beginning, year one, 2011, when Oregon was number nine and they played UCLA and Autzen, that game would not have happened. And that game would not have been played at, at Autzen Stadium. It would have been at Stanford. It would have been number four Stanford against number nine Oregon. Um, I think that was a team a lot of Duck fans will argue is – the greatest team in Oregon history. Uh, that was a loaded unit. Um, they had a ton of talent and they just couldn't get to the pack. So they just couldn't get to the championship game. Um, you also could say in 2012, the next season, uh, that team 
again, would have had a different outcome. It, it, this is another one that Duck fans would argue could be one of the best teams ever at Oregon. It was number eight Stanford taking on number 16 UCLA. And had this been policy been in place, the game would have been Oregon-Stanford because the Ducks were number five in the country. They did not make the Pac-12 championship game because they did not beat Stanford in the Zach Ertz game. Um, mm-hmm. And how, I mean – Back-to-back years, you would have two top 10 matchups, Oregon versus Stanford. Uh, that would have been awesome. 2015, uh, it would have been Stanford against Oregon. And I think a lot of Duck fans, a lot of people in the conference would argue if Vernon Adams never hurt his pinky that season against Michigan State week two or week one against Eastern Washington, um, Oregon's season is probably a lot different. And shoot, Mark Helfrich could have been the head coach. Uh, that team was loaded late in the year when Vernon Adams got healthy again. They were very, very good. Uh, and then a couple changes again. 2018, it would have been Washington against Washington State against Washington versus Utah. And then in 2020, uh, Washington would have not been the, the Pac-12 North representative, which they couldn't play in, which allowed Oregon to go into that game to play and beat USC. Instead, it would have been USC versus Colorado. And I think in that one instance, Jared, that probably would have been the year where they you don't want this policy in effect. Colorado was not the number 25 team in the country. They they benefited from playing a shortened season. Uh, USC probably would have gotten into the fact so, you know, would have won and uh, would have made the Fiesta Bowl. Maybe Clay Helton would be still the head coach. And that's probably not a good thing for the conference. <laughs> No, and yeah, but that's the one outlier. Everything yes. else is a situation where that those would have been better matchups than the originals. Um, granted, the originals were, were good as well, but you know it's a bunch of top ten matchups. Um, even that Washington Washington State season that would have been fantastic. That would have been a re- very fun game, and I know that's you know it's the whole state of Washington, so that kind of leaves like you know, if you live in California, you might 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 not be the biggest fan of that, but. Again, those are just better matchups. Um, it's better television. It's a frankly, it's a better way to get other people in the country to watch the Pac-12 when it's not just Oregon or um, Utah against a, a, the Pac-12 North champion when the if the Pac-12 North stinks, or it's the Pac-12 North against them when the Pac-12 South stinks. Um, it's just a better way to get better football on the field on, on your television. So I appreciate it. I, I at least at least they're trying. Yeah. You know, that they're, they're just trying to be better as an organization in the Pac-12. Um, we'll see if it sticks. I, I think it should. I think other conferences will follow suit. Um, I think that this was something where the Pac-12 wanted to get out in front of and be like, oh, this is our idea. Now, the next fallout from this um, is scheduling. The, the release stated that the 2022 football conference football schedule would remain in place based upon two divisions for this upcoming season, but scheduling scenarios for seasons beyond 2022 will continue to be reviewed. And there's a lot here. Um, you can't do away with rivalries. I mean, you want to see Oregon versus Washington every single year. It's one of the most, lucrative games the conference has you want to see Oregon USC every single year uh if you can make that happen 
The California schools want to play each other every single year. And then you've got eight out of the 12 teams all asking to play inside the conference or inside the state of California for recruiting purposes. To the point, I think Utah and Colorado had guarantees made to them when they joined the conference that every certain amount of years they would be playing um, in the state of California. So how they come up with a scheduling format should be interesting. Um, they're probably going to go pod. I'm okay with that. But the, the league has got to ensure that the league's best teams every year or the the teams that attract the most eyeballs play each other. Those matchups play each other every single year. And at the same time, you need to create some kind of balance where Oregon, for example, isn't getting an easy road and USC has to play this gauntlet schedule of, of teams. You, you, you gotta, you gotta kind of do what the SEC does and make sure your, your top three or four teams kind of get the, the marquee schedule. They absolutely do. Um, and they need to go down to eight games first in the conference. Yes, that needs That's, to happen. That first needs to happen. Um, man, I mean, they do need to have everybody go against each other. Um, the fact that, like, Oregon and Washington, they play every year. That's fantastic. Um, but the fact that Washington doesn't play USC or Oregon doesn't play USC or they both don't play UCLA every single year or Utah every single year, whatever the case may be, um, that stinks. That's just money lost for the Pac-12. That's a viewership loss. That's great potential games, all-timers lost. Um, they do need to follow the, the Big 12 and the SEC models where it's like, um, if you're Alabama or Georgia or Auburn or LSU, guess what? You're going to play everybody who's really good in the SEC. And it doesn't matter if you're really good because those games are going to happen. So, And I think that incentivizes teams to stay good. It, it has to because they know that they're going to go against Alabama and Georgia every year. Um, and they don't want to get the floor wiped. And, but and that, that's what the Pac-12 needs to do. The, the struggle is, at least for the last couple of seasons, is that the Pac-12 wasn't really sure if they would have one of those great teams. You know, the SEC knows that they're going to have Bama and Georgia and LSU and these guys be good teams are going to be in the, in the conversation until the end of the year. Um, if the PAC 12 were to do that with their great, the so-called great teams going into the season, it might not work. It might lead them with, you know, their best team coming out with three losses at the end of the year. And so I, I could see where they, they wanted to save face and try to give the benefit of the doubt to their best teams, you know, like set, set Oregon up with a stage to potentially punch their ticket to the college football playoffs or the road game against ASU and a freshman quarterback. But <laughs> that's the problem is that sometimes even when it's, you know, it seems like it is scheduled for them to do well. Um, the Pac-12 team doesn't come out on the other side. Yes. That happens far too many times. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, wrap it up with this. Um, Maybe the craziest press conference. Did I watched it live? Jerry, did you watch Jimbo Fisher's reaction to Nick Saban's press conference live, or did you catch the YouTube version of it? Uh, I watched. I watched all the videos. I didn't watch them live. Um, just absolutely 
insane of a press conference. Um, I've been in a couple where you walk out going, oh my God, that whole thing was awesome. This, this was just insane. There's no really way to describe it. Um, if you somehow missed it, the night before, Wednesday night, Nick Saban held, was at some kind of like booster event or something. Yeah. And was on the mic and, and accused Texas A&M of buying all of its recruits in the 2022 recruiting class. That's why they signed maybe the best recruiting class ever in the recruiting era. Um, they finished obviously number one. Saban noted that Alabama finished number two, but he doesn't believe that's going to be sustainable uh, if schools are going to be buying players. Um, he since then has backtracked those comments a little bit. Um, but Jimbo came out on Thursday morning, fired up, uh, accusing I – mean, he, he called Saban a narcissist. Uh, yeah. He was very adamant that he will never talk to him again. Uh, yeah. said that, you know, Saban is, is a bad person, essentially, um, huge blow up story. And I think the, t- why are we talking about this on this podcast? I, I think this is, we're starting to see cracks in the parody across college, the, the lack of parody in college football. Um, yes. A&M and state and university of Texas are two of the richest programs in the country, if not B2. Um, they have insane boosters with massive oil money. That is some context you need to know. But we're starting to see recruits take advantage of the opportunities that they have ahead of them and not go status quo and just go to the three or four best schools in, in college football. And I think this is a, a yet another sign that, hey, some of the, the, the blue bloods are getting a little feisty here because other schools are starting to land players just, you know, be, be, you know, for, for various reasons, NIL playing time coaches, what have you. And, you know, we're starting to see a very slow drip of talent distribution spread out across college football. Yes. Um, I thought it was, I thought it went a different way. Okay. I thought maybe mine's a little more conspiracy theory here, but to me, it sounded like Nick Saban was asking for money from his boosters. Ooh, I mean, that could be it because, and I say this because Saban went out and he didn't accuse, he didn't accuse Texas A&M of, of cheating or breaking any rules. Correct. He said that these are the rules that are in place and they took advantage of it. And, but it was interesting that Saban specifically mentioned people, schools and players basically by name and mentioned that um, Travis Hunter of, of Jackson state got a million dollars, which he denied on Twitter. It was out there that he might've gotten it. We'll probably never know if he ever got a million dollars, but Saban directly mentioned him by name and the, and the price tag that he got or um, a player from Miami got 400,000 over two years. Um, Which we know is or, true because the guy that paid him t- told us all. <laughs> right. It was interesting though, that he asked or he mentioned those specific price tag figures where it's like, 
Saban was basically like, well, they could get the number one player in the country for a million dollars. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, Boosters? All I need is 1.2. That's all I need to get the number one player in the country for next year. Did you hear that, Boosters? 400,000 over two years. We can't do 600,000 over three, make it more. Um, that's how I took it. I, I really, I think he really messed, Saban really messed up by mentioning people by name. Yes. Um, if he's, you know, old, old man yells at cloud, the Simpsons mean, <laughs> um, I get that. He was that like six years ago when he complained about the up-tempo offense. Yep. What are they doing now? Um, up-tempo offense. They have a Heisman quarterback in Bryce Young. They have a Heisman wide receiver just two years ago in Devontae Smith. Um, I think it'll all all change. I think it's all kind of just for show. I think the rest of the country is just going to continue to move on and play by the NIL rules. And I also think Alabama a hundred million percent plays by the NIL rules. Um, like Bryce Young has like a million dollar deal yep. down there in Tuscaloosa. Um, and I think another fun thing was like all the players who talked about um, how kids at both schools were basically being paid before NIL yeah. And like kind of admitting that that happened. I mean, we all knew that that happened. Yep. Um, I mean, there's, I, I still don't, I can't tell you the reason why um, a former Alabama quarterback who now plays for the Miami Dolphins, why he had his whole family somehow get up and move from Hawaii to Tuscaloosa and have a house and everything like that at, at Alabama. Um it happens and I think everybody knew it. And I don't think that a lot of people cared. I think Saban is really upset that he doesn't have the number one recruiting class and now has to go against Texas A&M who isn't, I would say a hundred percent isn't at the same level as Alabama is on the football field. Uh, when he has to go against Georgia, I don't think it's that big of a deal, but now that A&M has entered the fray with that money, um, yeah, I I don't think that he's a big fan of it. I did look up public school endowments because clearly schools with money are going to help here. Um, and the UT system and Texas A&M University system are the highest. Um, but it's it's interesting after that because these are schools that should make a difference in and NIL because of the money that they have, but just kind of don't. You have like University of Pittsburgh and UNC Chapel Hill, Washington, Wisconsin, Michigan State. Like there are a lot of, you know, schools that have a lot of cash behind them, but not a lot of it's going to football. Yeah. And I think that's the major difference. This also was something that I, I thought was hilarious because I don't think Jimbo ever once denied that his recruits got NIL deals. It was just that no. Texas A&M didn't give them those deals, didn't buy mm-hmm. those players. It was the collective. Right. He has the no, third party. Yeah. That he has no idea of what they're doing, which is kind of funny. Um, and then Saban is out here saying, hey, A&M bought all these guys when no, they didn't. But they kind of did. Like it was like it, <laughs> it was just a whole bunch of just like you know schematics. They're all just talking about how they phrased it, and the other guy's upset about how it was phrased and yada yada yada. When, like you said, players have from both schools have kind of come out and be like, "Yeah, we we've we've gotten this. This is the way it's been." Um, and it 
all in all, like I just go back to the Mike Bray, Notre Dame head basketball coach, the quote he had a couple weeks back um, where he was talking to other assistant coaches saying, we get paid a lot of money to to coach a sport. Um, Do we agree or not agree? Like that's up for debate about NIL, but it's here. And we get paid because we get paid a lot of money. It's, it's either adapt or die. Like we shouldn't complain. Like we have a, very good job. We're well compensated compared to most Americans out there. Adapt or die. And that's kind of where I fall in this is like Saban may not like this at all and, and argue. And I may not think I don't like how, you know, we're seeing recruits just go to the highest bidder, but that's the world we kind of live in right now. And if you're not going to adapt to that, your program's going to go by the wayside and eventually die. Yeah, and I mean this—the money that these kids make seems astronomical at this stage, at this point during the NIL era. Um, but it's nothing compared to what the schools make off their football programs and their basketball Absolutely. programs, and what the NCAA makes. Um, they're a nonprofit, but they they pull in billions of dollars a year. Um, I think just March, just March Madness, and I know everybody's heard this, but just March Madness makes over a billion dollars for the NCAA. And so these kids could have been paid by the NCAA with the amount of money that they have, but they decided to go third party and let boosters and, and donors and help all of that. Um, and yeah, people are, people are going to be mad and that's okay. Um, I think I think people will be mad until their school starts to do it yeah. and then realizes that, you know, everyone's doing this, but I don't think it's going to really change how, um, how recruits look at schools. I think the best schools in the country are still going to get the best players in the country. Um, I think that's kind of always how it's been. I don't think Alabama's going to stop recruiting. I don't think George is going to stop recruiting. Um, Texas A&M didn't have like a number one class before this, but they were still a very good recruiting school. Um, I think obviously it's going to help Oregon. It should help other Pac-12 schools. It should help USC. Um, but those are all really big schools that I just mentioned. I don't, I don't think it's going to have that much parity in the long run. And I think the market will correct itself. I think NIL will be a thing in the past in a couple of years. Um, maybe because uh, states and, and their legislative branches change the rules because someone complains too much that it's not fair. But until that point, I think, yeah, you gotta, you gotta live in the moment and not in the past. I think to wrap this up, um, Zach Soskin, he works with NIL and branding, um, he is a University of Oregon alum. I should note that. He tweeted out during this, I thought, a perfect way to capulate this. Um, advice to coaches, there's no winning a NIL PR battle. Stay above the fray. Shaming a rival for NIL makes you look archaic, hyper, hypocritical. Denying you use NIL makes you look dishonest. And bragging about NIL publicly only puts an unnecessary target on your kids and your program. I think it's a tough world for a college coach to be in. And unfortunately for them, probably the best 
way to go about it is don't talk about it publicly. Really don't, don't say much. Certainly talk about it with your recruits. Certainly talk about it with your players and your staff and what whatnot. But to go out here and, and do what both Saban and Jimbo have done, um, to do what you know, Miami is currently doing, you're only putting yourself in a really tough spot. And you know to tie it around, I think Oregon's done a really good job of they talk about it, but they don't really talk about it. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I think, I mean, with Texas A&M and it's when they talk about it, it's, it's interesting, like the Saban and Jimbo, but for Miami, it's, it's not really coming out of crystal ball's lips. It's really just like their boosters who are paying for everything. And for them, it's like one dude, it's like one billionaire who's just paying for everything. And that's, you know, basically all you need Um, for Oregon. When they talk about it, it's through their division street. It's never through like independent resellers or independent boosters. Um, So I think that's a good way to go about it. Um, I'm sure that won't, uh, can't happen at every school, but it's a, it was a fun Thursday in terms of college football news in the middle of May. So I'll I'll take it. Middle of May, we get football news, plenty to talk about. It's going to do it for us here on the Odson Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, I'll be back on Monday with a mailbag. Jared will be in sunny Arizona covering baseball, uh, mm. but we will get Eric back on the podcast for our Monday mailbag. Uh, until then, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Peace. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Should you ever set foot outside of the motel, you will be shot. Don't miss the new Showtime limited series based on the international bestseller. For the last four years, I've been a prisoner. Why are they keeping you here? Starring Emmy Award winner Ewan McGregor. This is the brave new world that you dreamt of. Be very careful. You are still a prisoner here. Everything in this new world comes at cost. This is still my country. A Gentleman in Moscow, now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan.